Well, last week we acknowledged just the craziness of 2020, right? And the results and the tiredness that it's, it's really left a lot of us feeling. And that our much-needed rest is found in Jesus Christ. And really we need to uh, be all in, just giving God uh, every aspect. And I think, uh, like you, I, I'm assuming here, that the events of this past week have just contributed to the craziness. Uh, it's reminded us of the crisis that our country is in, and it continues to deepen the results in people feeling sad, uh, frustrated, angry, shocked, uh, maybe some even feel excited. Uh, and so this week I have, I have thought, I have prayed, I have sought counsel on really how to approach all of what's going on. And the reason for this uh, is a couple of things. One, I recognize that I'm a pastor and, and a spiritual leader. And you need to hear God's word and God's perspective on framing what's going on and how we should respond, right? You get enough of the perspective of the world through social media, through news outlets, uh, and through other sources, but rarely do we hear scripture of what should we do. I also thought long and hard and sought counsel because it's a highly emotionally charged time with opinions and responses being all over the map, including those within our congregation, right? whether you're here or you're at home uh, watching. And so um, I feel compelled this morning to speak to you and give you a biblical perspective and framework as you try to navigate the present and also the future. Okay, and I'm not going to stand here today and tell you how you should think, how you should respond. I'm going to give you a biblical framework so that you can Uh, formulate your responses and your thought process around it. Amen? Amen. And I feel like if we'll capture and understand uh, the biblical principles that we have here, it will well equip you to navigate uh, where our country's at and where you're at as it relates to all of that. So in John, we're going to start in John chapter 18 in verse 36 and lay some groundwork here. So in John chapter 18, verse 36, uh, Jesus is in the middle of a conversation with Pilate before his crucifixion, okay? And the, the, the Jews um, are saying he's claiming to be king, and that's why he should be, uh, you know, uh, killed. Um, that's the, some of the charges they're bringing against him. And so Pilate's questioning him about his kingship. And it says this, Jesus responds to Pilate in this way in in chapter 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. That makes sense, doesn't it? If Jesus was trying to establish his his kingship over Israel and and throughout the Roman government and or displace Jewish leaders or any of those kinds of things, if that was his goal, the people who support him would fight so that he's not removed from that, and so he continues. We all understand that, especially from this week's events, right? Right? There are folks who feel strongly and have fought for an individual, and so Jesus is saying that, like, hey, if my kingdom was for here, my followers would be fighting 
But none of his followers fought. If you remember the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was arrested, everybody ran, and it was Jesus on his own. So he's bringing this, hey, Pilate, my kingdom is from somewhere else. And he finishes, says, but, but now my kingdom is from another place. So he's, he's drawing a distinction that Jesus' kingship is not of this world, it's from a different place. And, and there's other supporting scripture. Uh, I, I just su- lay this out to you because this is what Jesus is saying. Uh, there's two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of heaven, or scripture says the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, uh, that's in a different place. And then there's the kingdom of men, or scripture might say the kingdom of this world, or just the world. There's two kingdoms. And what is a kingdom? Basically, is a kingdom, that's, it's a place that is ruled. Okay, so when you, when you talk about what is a kingdom, it's just a place that has a ruler. It's a place uh, that rules. Hey, guys, I can hear you up, up there. Um, so when we talk about the kingdom of men, we're talking about the place that men or women rule and reign. Right? And then when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about the place that God reigns. There's two kingdoms. Now, the kingdom of men and the kingdom of this world, we are all born into. When your mother gave birth to you, uh, you were born into this world, the kingdom of men, the kingdom of this world. We're all born into it, okay? When we get saved, we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, And Colossians 1, verse 13, explains this. It says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, which is the kingdom of men here, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So our our, uh, citizenship gets transferred. We're transferred. We're, We're rescued from. We're brought out of the kingdom, and we're given into this kingdom of the Son, this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God, right? We are rescued from and transferred to. Philippians 3.20 states it this way, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he's drawn this distinction there are, there's this kingdom of men, which we call the world, and there's this kingdom of heaven, which is ruled by Jesus Christ, the Son. There's two kingdoms. And when we, when we get saved through Jesus Christ, we're, our citizenship is transferred and we're awarded citizenship in heaven. You have been rescued from a temporary kingdom and given citizenship into an eternal one. Because we all know that the kingdoms of men rise and fall. You can look, pick up any history book and see that there were all kinds of empires and kingdoms and rules that, that came prominent and, fail and, and finally failed and another one arose and, and so on and so forth. But we've been rescued and given a citizenship into one that is forever. So then the question becomes, if I'm a citizen of heaven, what happens? I'm living here in earth. I'm living in the kingdom of men. And so while we wait for the return of our Lord that that Philippians, uh, Paul brings out in the book of Philippians, 
where our Lord has gone to prepare a place for us. He told his disciples that, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I will come back and take you to where I've been. So while we wait for that, we live in this world. We live in this kingdom of men. Even though we know our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. So, because we live, I'm, I'm explaining this because as you read scripture, you'll begin to see this through the lens. Whenever, whenever Paul or Peter or James or anybody says the world, they're talking about the reign and rule of men in, uh, here on earth. Let me pause here for a minute. You're like, well, you didn't talk about the kingdom of darkness. Isn't there three kingdoms? Um, some could argue that. I don't. I say there's two. Why? Because Jesus defeated the kingdom of darkness. He, he stripped it of its power. And so Satan is left to work through the kingdom of men here on earth. The only power the devil has is the influence he has on you and me to act and do according to his ways. If you say, no devil, he has no power over you. So his, his work is to work through the kingdom of men in this world to try to destroy the kingdom of heaven. So there's two kingdoms. A lot going on, but two kingdoms. That's, that's where I lay on it. Now, because we are citizens of heaven, we live differently in the kingdom of men in the world. And let me show you a few scriptures it's really all through the New Testament, but I'm going to show you a few so you get an understanding. In Colossians 3, verses 2 through 4, Paul writes this, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You see the distinction? There's, there's a, a way of living up in heaven, and there's a way of living here on earth. And he says, set your mind on the things above, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's saying, hey, you're to identify yourself with Christ now, which is in heaven, not the things here on earth. Paul writes to the Philippians, uh, the believers in Philippi, in Philippians 1.27, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. Conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. So Paul is saying, listen, as you live here on earth, your conduct, the things you think, the things you say, the things you do, should reflect who you are as a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of earth. Peter writes this in um, 1 Peter 1, verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So again, he's calling that your, your time here on earth, now that you're a citizen of heaven, is living as a foreigner in another, lang- in another country. This is interesting because uh, he's drawing the... Um, the comparison that, that your citizenship, how you live your life, the things that are important to you, your, who you respect and why you live that way is you respect God. You, you're in awe of God, and so therefore you obey God. And so you live by heaven's principles, God's principles, instead of the principles here on earth as a foreigner. 
Think of it this way. You're an American citizen. If you went to live in any other part of the world, you're still an American citizen even though you're living in that country. And so you do your best to assimilate within that country, right? But you're still a foreigner in that country. So internally, you would not do un-American things. For instance, what if you showed up in that country and you went to you know, a, uh, a, a party and they say, hey, here we have a custom of burning the American flag. You're like, well, I guess in this country I've got to burn an American flag. Like, internally you would say, no, this is wrong. I can't really partake in this because I'm an American citizen and we don't burn our flag in protest. Well, some do, but it's, right, you, I have a respect for my country, so I'm, I'm not going to participate in that, that behavior. You live as a foreigner. Lastly, Ephesians 4.1, Paul writes this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In that um, calling, what he's talking about, we, we, we made reference to this back in September and October when we went through the book of Ephesians. That calling is the expected way that you should live because of who you are. Live your life in a way that's synonymous with who you are. If you're a citizen of heaven, then live as a citizen of heaven. That's what he's saying here. So, all of these and so many other scriptures, there's a consistent message in the New Testament that our thoughts and actions should reflect heavens, which means our citizenship in heaven is primary and our citizenship in the world is secondary. If you want, what is all Paul saying? That our citizenship in heaven is of primary importance. That that's where our loyalties lie. That's where our behavior should match. That is what we should be about. Living as citizens of heaven. And, and we all live in the world of men. Uh, when I say men, it's neutral. I'm sorry. It's, I'm just saying gender neutral. Mankind. We, we live in the world of, of people, where people reign and rule in different worlds, and we have to live within this world, and that's fine. We should interact in this world as a result, but, but heaven's primary. Practically, what does all of that mean? We have to live our lives here on earth. There's no, we're here, we're waiting for a Savior to come and take us to the place, the city he's preparing for us, that's free of sin and free of all the things associated with that, and we anticipate that. We look forward to that. But as we live here on earth, uh, we, we live our lives by the principles and rules of heaven. That it's, it's God's word, it's his principles that guide us, that strive us. It's, we want to reflect heaven. We don't want to reflect the men and women around us. You say, well, is that a license to be weird and crazy? No. You see, we should live in this world and be at peace and, and, and try to live by the laws of the lands and the expectations of people. The issue is when, there's, when, when the two violate, when there's, a, when there's a difference, when living as a citizen of this world violates living as a citizen of heaven, we must choose to live as a citizen of heaven. So, so whenever, there, whenever there's alignment, and we can live here on earth and we can live in heaven and there's no conflict, we do. It's not a big deal. 
But when we come across a violation where we say, no, 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 that is not how a citizen of heaven thinks, speaks, or, or acts, we must reflect heaven rather than the world around us. It's imperative. And this is why initially Christians were given the title Christian. Because they were like Christ. So when people saw, Christians didn't call themselves Christians. That was a term given to them by others. Hey, those people are like Christ. They talk like him, they act like him, they live like him. And so therefore, we're going to call them Christ-like Christians. And now the term has become something else to mean a whole bunch of other things, and, and uh, most, a lot of it has nothing to do with Christ. So, when citizens of heaven are living, what, what else does this mean practically? When citizens of heaven, people who, are, who uh, follow Jesus Christ and say their citizenship is somewhere else, are living in the kingdom of men in this world in a way that violates the principles of heaven. It's the responsibility of those other citizens of heaven to come alongside and teach, correct, and restore. Right? Just as it is, if you're an American citizen and you're violating American laws, it's the American's responsibility to come alongside and say, hey, that's not how we act. That doesn't bring peace. It doesn't bring unity. We need to teach you. We need, if you didn't know, we need to correct you. If you did, and we, then we need to restore you to your citizenship. That, that's kind of what should be what we do. And, and it, when it comes to the church and the citizens of heaven, it's the same way. If you see somebody who's clearly violating the principles of heaven, we have to come around them. Say, hey, did you know that this is... This isn't reflective of a citizen of heaven. Uh, did you, if you did, then, hey, we need to kind of correct this behavior, find out why you think this way, why you're acting this way, why you're doing these things, why you're saying these things, and help you come in alignment, walk alongside you and restore you so that you reflect what a citizen of heaven looks like. That's the role of the church. That's why we assemble. One of the reasons we're together as a community. A community helps each other. We move each other, we encourage, but we also teach and correct and restore. Now, I want to talk about, spend the rest of our time talking about something else, because this is, those things I think we understand that uh, was necessary to prove a framework for you for what we're going to talk about next. What do we do when citizens of heaven differ, but they're not violating principles of heaven. How do we handle that? How do we handle it when Christians who say, my, my Savior is Jesus Christ, I am born again, waiting for Christ to return, I love him, I worship him, and I'm going to heaven, but man, I strongly disagree with you on something that, that's not a violation of heaven's principles. Like, which political party do you follow? Right? That's one, one small example. There's so many things that you and I both know that people who call themselves Christians, and we call ourselves a Christian, that mean we have a strong difference of opinion over something. But you know what? We can't quite find in here what, what the difference is unless we twist Scripture to mean something it doesn't really mean. 
right? Just, I call the sky blue, you call it gray, and we fight over it, right? Like, just when we don't violate the principles of heaven. And I want to talk about that, and here's why I want to talk about that. Because in our current society, we are very divided as a nation, but as people in general. And do you know that uh, 2019 uh, Pew Research said that 65% of American adults consider themselves Christians? 65%, in some fashion, that they, they say Christ, Christ is their Savior. Uh, theologically, we may disagree with a lot of that percentage, but as Christians in general who say, I believe in Jesus Christ, 65% of the American population says that. That's interesting, because if that were true and we were all in unity, I don't think we'd be having the problems we're having today. Right? And so we've got to figure out then, how do we interact as believers? How How do we approach each other when we differ very passionately and strongly about different things? How do we live? And we, I know we marched through this, and I'd encourage you to go back and watch the, the videos or listen to the sermons. Uh, we marched through the book of Ephesians in September and October, and we talked about a lot of these things that have, are going to lay the groundwork for us today. But if you really want to know how you should live uh, with fellow believers, read Ephesians chapter 4. I'm pulling everything today out of Ephesians chapter 4. So let's look at that this morning. We read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 uh, already. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Right? He starts off by saying, listen, you've, you've been called, you've been invited to be the citizen of heaven. I urge you to live a life that is synonymous with what you've been invited to. And then he goes on to talk about that. Verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. The very first principle is love. And I start off with love. Uh, One, Paul starts off with it here. But second, I start off with love because love is really our supreme ethic you say, well, what do you mean by supreme ethic? It's a guiding principle. That, that God, First John, right, God is love. It's the reason God came from heaven to earth and offered Jesus Christ. He was motivated by love. Our greatest, the two greatest commandments for us, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Hey, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love is everyone. If you read 1 Corinthians 13, which uh, articulates the kind of love that God is talking about, because we all know that we can have a different definition of love, right? The world around us, even the Greek language has four definitions for love, the different nuances. God defines the kind of love he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But he says there also that nothing else matters if you don't have Love. You could be the most influential, most powerful speaker in the world, but if you don't have love, you're just a wah, 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 just a noise. 
right? You can, have, you can be the most gifted, the most articulate, and do the most, but if you don't have love, it really means nothing. Read it. He says, if you don't have love, nothing else that you do really even matters. So it's our, it's our guiding principle. Everything that we do must come from a foundation of love. Everything we think, everything we say, everything that we do. And I don't want to preach and take up the morning on preaching about love. Read 1 Corinthians 13 and look at the characteristics of love and say, hmm, this is what God is asking citizens of heaven of how to live their life, that everything within it has this patience, has this humility, has this gentleness, has this kindness, has this forgiveness, right? That this is the foundation of everything else I say, do, act, think should come from a foundation of love. I mean, if we spent our life alone just trying to perfect love, you could spend a lifetime. Right? I mean, if you look through that characteristics, those, those you would say, man, I really have a hard time being gentle. I, I really have a hard time being patient. I, I really have a hard time maybe being kind or forgiving wrongs. Or you pick through, there's something you'll go, man, I do pretty good at that. And then there's some that you'll go, that's a tough one. We're all there. We're all there. We must have a foundation of love. We move on to verse 3 and it says this. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Unity is our second, second point here in Ephesians. Now, I want to talk to you about this because unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean uniformity. You're like, what do you mean by uniformity? Where we all look the same, talk the same, act the same, think the same, speak the same. That's not the definition of unity. That's the definition of uniformity. In the rest, uh, Ephesians verses uh, 4, verses 4 through 8, actually go on and explain this. Let's read it. For there is one body, one spirit, as you were called to, one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. What is Paul bringing out here? He's bringing out the things that we should be uh, unified around, the things that we hold in common. There's one body of Christ. There's one Holy Spirit. There's one hope that we're called to. There's one faith. There's one baptism. We're all baptized into Jesus Christ and into his life. He's, he's talking about the things that we all hold in common. If you call upon Jesus Christ, this is the main thing. This is what we all have in common. He goes on, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We have the one God and Father in common. This is, man, this is what we have. This is us. This is together. We all go here. But then he goes on, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What is Paul drawing the connection with here. He's saying, listen, we all have these things in common. We all have one God, one Father, one hope, one faith, but God's made you each differently. 
He's given you different gifts. He's given you different grace. He's given you different perspectives. He's, he's opened your eyes to things he hasn't opened your eyes to and vice versa. He's made you unique for a purpose, for a reason. And that is okay. So you see, we have this unity, but not uniformity. God, he's drawing the contrast. And Paul is saying, listen, Unity comes when we all uh, make the main thing the main thing. When I can look at you and say, oh, you believe, you call on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Oh man, we're brothers and sisters. We have one God, we have the same faith, we hope in the same thing. And that's the basis of where our unity is found. That our hope is in Jesus Christ and our citizenship in heaven. Isn't that awesome? We can... We can fellowship together. We can have conversation. We can worship together. We can talk together. But recognizing he's also made me very different. And just because uh, the, the things outside of those one things, I may think a little differently. I may have a different perspective. I may have a different opinion and, and uh, persuasion is Okay unless I'm violating a principle of heaven. God, it's okay to have strong opinions. It's okay to be you. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I won't, I won't share who, but I, I asked several people after the, the events this week in the Capitol, what's the first thing that you see when all this unfolded? And they're people I love, people I respect, people that I know aren't extremist, crazy. Like, what's the one thing that you saw? You know, I had five different answers. Man, the, man, what I see in there is this, this, this. I just, the other person, what do you see? What? Man, first thing blaring, obviously, to me is this. And you go, wow, how could, how could people see things from so differently? God created us different. We have different experiences. We have different filters that we, have, we see life through. We have, we, it's just different. And so we recognize that, and it's okay to be that. It's okay to be that, as long as we're not violating heaven's principles. The third thing that we see in Ephesians, verse 15, says this. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. The focus here on this verse is truth. And truth is the third principle we see here in Ephesians. Truth, uh, especially as it relates to, to God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, uh, we should be seeking that truth, but it, really here he's talking about all truth. That, that we have to be people who just embrace, look for, and desire truth. Not, not, not the thing that you hope is true, but the thing that's actually true. As it relates to God, right? As it relates to the events around you, as, as it relates, like, you, we just have to be people who say, um, that is, yes, that is a true statement. 
And I think there's a fear here around this, isn't there? There's a fear if you live, uh, if you have strong opinions about something and, and something that's true about your opinion that could maybe cast your opinion in a negative light and people won't see it, you tend to maybe hide that truth. Right? Maybe you tend to, no, yeah, but let's shift. And, and, and as people of, of, of heaven, we love truth because God is true. Scripture says God is true and every man is a liar. That in, within every one of us, we understand aspects of truth and there, there are other sides of us and other pieces of us that we, we try to suppress the truth because oh, that's going to kind of conflict with how I live my life and how I think and how I move forward. And I think I just want to suppress that and not really entertain that because it's going to make me change. And, and as followers of Christ, as citizens of heaven, we have to look for the truth in everything. And then allow God's word, allow his Holy Spirit to help us adjust to what is true. Let me go on and show you. Here it says Ephesians verse 14 is the result of not knowing the truth. It says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Verse 14 articulates what happens when we don't know the truth. We're subject to every wind of doctrine, every thoughts of mankind, the schemes and crafting, like, hey, we just need to move people to think this way, let's do this. And You not knowing the truth makes you susceptible to being blown around by every kind of thought process, teaching, doctrine, scheme that's out there. Because you don't have the truth to keep you solid. I'll make a little plug here, uh, selfishly, for why we need to study our Bibles. Because that's God's word to us. God knew that this was going to happen across all the ages, not just in 2020 and 2021 in America. Like, throughout all the ages, mankind has sought to manipulate people and move them and get them to think like they think. And so God gave us his word so we could stand and say, well, I I want to know what God thinks. And I want to stand on that and... Oh, that's kind of in alignment with God speaks. I can support that. Or, no, that's not in alignment with God speaks. I have to reject that, right? That's, that's why we have this and should read it and study it and understand it. So the result of not knowing the truth means, man, we are susceptible to all kinds of... I love what he puts here, the cunning and craftiness. I mean, there's some really good arguments out there that sound amazing and sound right. You need to dig in and learn and say, is that based in the truth and the principles of God? And if they're not, regardless of who's presenting it, you have to reject it. Verse 17 is the reason for not knowing the truth. 17 through 19. I tell you this, and Paul says, I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And so because their hearts are hardened, they've lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they're full of greed. 
So Paul's articulating here the reason they don't know the truth. And you can read it in Romans as well where he says they suppress the truth and so their, their minds have become darkened. The ways of God and what's right and true kind of doesn't, there's no bearing or course anymore. They just kind of make things up as they go. But when you have very intelligent and crafty people, very influential and charismatic people who are being blown around by every wind of whatever's going on, they can make some really convincing arguments that sound great. And if you don't know the truth, you'll get swept up in it. So truth is something that we must pursue and desire. Ephesians 4.25, I love the encouragement he has here. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. I I framed it this way. We have to seek and speak. Seek and speak the truth. People who love the truth, we seek after the truth, we want what's true, we want, and we speak it as well. Like, like, I agree with that because that's true, but I, I don't agree with that because that's not true. So what does it mean to seek the truth? That we set our heart, we set our mind, and we, we set our desires to, hey, I, I want to know the truth about this. I can't dismiss things and say, well, even though that's, that's true, it doesn't seem to fit, so I just need to reject it. Mm-mm, mm-mm. If that is true, it has a place in here. That just means that your, our thinking needs to change, that God is doing something, then revealing, and, and it's all part of the equation. And if you'll, if you'll embrace all the truth about it and marinate it and bring it to God's word and bring it to God in prayer, he'll, he'll lead you to sort it all out. You can trust in him. And obviously what I've been pointing over and over again is you have to you have to read your word. You have to seek to understand it because it reveals truth to you. Don't even take my word for it. I would never intentionally mislead you, but I am, I am not God. I am not perfect. There are times in my time as pastoring that people uh, within the congregation who know their word have come to me and said, oh, Pastor, I think that said something different. And I receive it, because I'm not perfect. Read your word. God will reveal truth to you. We need to speak truth. Remember, when you speak truth, it needs to be done from a foundation of love. Because attitude matters. Truth without love means nothing. We've all seen that on Facebook, social media, other platforms, right? Right? Someone, someone just, I think you need to know the truth here, right? And they, wow, and you're like, Psst, like block, right? Because truth, how you present truth matters. It needs to be from a foundation of love. If you feel anger boiling up and you need to let this person know the truth, keep your mouth shut. That's just a freebie, right? Because you, will, you, might, you might communicate the truth, but you're going to communicate something else you don't intend, or if you do intend it, then you need to repent. Done from a foundation of love. When we speak truth, we oppose lies and bad doctrine. That's what it means to speak the truth. When something's not true, we go, mm, I, have to, I have to say I don't agree with you there because that's not, not a true statement. 
or bad doctrine. People who say something out here and it's slightly tweaked, it's not true, it's not right on, they're doing something. You're like, no, hey, that's, that's not true. That's not what your scripture says. That's not what my scripture says. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an example. And, uh, and I know we're in a culture right now where it's, tensions are high and whatnot, but uh, there's definitely an example with this in politics and the, and the growing ten- trend of syncretism. And syncretism is simply this. It's the uniting of your politics and your theology together. It's the, it's the saying, uh, my theology and my politics are the same, so when I'm serving my politics, I'm serving God. And it's dangerous, and it's wrong. This is why just about every political ideology has elements of the gospel in it. You can find it in almost every political ideology. If you doubt that, see me after service and tell me which one you're thinking of, and I will show you the political, the shred of gospel in there that you can find and why. I have worked with, with people through the Council of Churches from every Christian ideology you can think of or Christian angle you can think of. I've worked with people who are not Christian and, and had conversations about why they believe what they believe. And if you listen, you can hear elements of the gospel in their thought process. So when we only focus on the elements of the gospel and say, see, this is why this is the Christian way and the right way to go, and, and, and my faith is synonymous of me being this political so-and-so, and you disregard all the other stuff that is really anti-Christian and nothing like Christ, uh, you are not being truthful. Every political ideology has parts that have elements of the gospel, and every political ideology has ideas of people that are very far from God. And you have to truthfully look at that and say, I recognize the things that are gospel, and I recognize the things that are of men. My citizenship is in heaven. And you have to support the ideas that are synonymous with Scripture and oppose the ideas that are not. This is extremely difficult to do, especially in the arena that you lean towards. What do I mean? Continuing the political thing, if you are a conservative, it will be very difficult for you to see the evil side of conservatism. If you're a liberal, it will be very hard for you to see the evil sides in liberalism and all the other isms. If you lean that way, you need other brothers and sisters to point it out to you that you trust and that, love, that you know love you. And so you can say, yeah, you're right. I do see that in, 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 in that ideology. It's paramount. This is why we have each other. This is why we come together as a church and we don't all look the same and think the same and act the same. We have a, we have a one uh, common thing that's, that's Jesus Christ. It's God the Father. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the baptism. This is what brings us together into worship. The rest of the stuff is there so that we can help each other navigate while we live in this world of men. We need each other to point to the truth in love. And if you're in relationship, if we're, if we're together in a congregation or, you're, or you're, it's a brother or sister in Christ, there should be this level of, man, this person, we have the same God. We're serving the same gold. We're ser- I'll give you an ear to hear why is it that you think that I'm thinking something that's not true or I'm acting in a way that's against the principles of heaven. Let me 
wrap this up here. Revelation eleven fifteen says this. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation just simply reminds us that the, the world we live in, the kingdom of men, is temporary. And that the kingdom of heaven is eternal. And that we are citizens of an eternal kingdom. And really it's our, our, our right, our obligation, our, our benefit to live by the principles of heaven while we live in the world of men. And as it relates to living with, with each other in this kingdom of men in the areas that we disagree when it's okay. And, and let me pause here before I move on. I, I don't want you to get the idea that you shouldn't be active in your government, that you shouldn't be a, a civic servant, that you shouldn't get involved and work for the peace of the city and the goodness of all mankind and all those kinds of things. Those are, those are right and those are true and we should be involved. My argument with you today is that the principles of heaven ought to govern your behavior as you do those things. And if you find the two in violation, that your default needs to be that I'm a citizen of heaven and need to stand in that instead of the other. But the principles we need to live by are love, unity, and truth. These will guide us as we live in this world, as we await a Savior as I close, let me point out this. This is a personal responsibility. We don't wait for our, our friends to get it together before we live this way. We don't wait till our workplace or our family gets together till we live this way or to the people in our church or to our government or our political parties or any of those other kinds of things. God holds the individual accountable like this is my way, walk in it. It's personal. We live this way regardless of the way the people around us live. And this starts by we look at ourselves first. We look at ourselves first and say, am I living by the principles of love? Am I living by the principles of unity? Am I living by the principles of truth? And before I can make comments or yell at or argue or point out to other people, I I need to make sure I'm doing it. There's a scripture about removing the plank out of our own eye before we try to remove others. Scripture makes some bold claims. Do you know that it says you, you are the salt of the earth. You are a light in a dark place. That's what God speaks about you. This happens when Christ is our primary resource. You don't have to try to be salt of the earth. You don't have to try to be the light. You don't have to go and say, you know what, I'm commanded as a Christian to go be the salt, so I'm going to show the salt. No, when you just, when Jesus Christ is your primary resource, as Pastor Sean prayed earlier, when we're, when we're learning our word and we're invested and we're, man, I'm learning this about God, and then when we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we just are those things. When we live as citizens of heaven instead of citizens of earth, we just become different 
We don't have to try. We don't have to go make a voice heard. You are already that. Just walk in it. Just walk in it. Say, God, God's spirit lives in me, and I'm going to, as I follow his principles, as I just love people, as I'm, as I'm patient, as I'm kind, as I'm these things, man, people see this and say, ah, oh, this world's crazy, but so-and-so's different. They just live differently. They think differently. Man, I said something the other day that would have started a fight with somebody else, but instead they returned and they loved on me. And when we do that, it changes things. But as we talked about last week, Christ has to be our primary resource, meaning that he's, the, he's our place that we go to. He's the place that we seek. He's the, we seek to live by his ways and none other. Our eyes are set on heaven and not on here as we walk through this earth. And I hope today that you will feel a little bit of a challenge and permission, a permission to live as a citizen of heaven in this world. Permission to just say, no, I refuse to think that because, because that, doesn't, that thought doesn't align with Scripture. I, I refuse to spread that, that, those thoughts and those ideas because you know what, that's, that's, really, that's not synonymous with, with what God would have me do or say or think. So I'm, you know, I'm going to live this way. And it may sound to you, it might be like I'm putting my head in the sand or I'm being, you know, just a pie in the sky kind of ideology. But you know what? Uh, This has led billions of men and women over thousands of years. And it's always rung true. So you know what? I'm going to play my odds. I'm going to live this way. I'm going to live this way. And the chips will fall where the chips will fall, but you will be the salt of the earth and you will be the light in a dark place. And that's okay. You know why it's okay? Because God has given you the Holy Spirit's power to be able to live this way. This is, it feels very difficult in your own strength. You say, man, Pastor, this is hard. I just get caught up and all these things happen and I see Facebook and I can't believe people think this way and other Christians. And I was caught up in that at the beginning of this week. Man, I was scrolling through social media and seeing how some of my Christian friends were thinking, even pastor friends, and I'm like, oh my word. Do you know where that thinking leads to? Think it out just a few steps. You don't even have to go all the way. Do you know where that kind of thought press takes you? It's certainly not reconciliation. It's certainly not unity. But you know what? I, I, I can only live for me. Meaning... I'm responsible for me. I'm not responsible for you. Well, I am a little bit. (laughs) We all are a little bit. But God's going to hold me accountable for the things that I do. He's going to hold you accountable for the things that you do. He's not going to hold me accountable for what you do. And so I have to focus on love. I have to focus on trying to unify people who are citizens of heaven, not divide them. i got to seek to know the truth and live by truth in my own life, regardless of where it falls and where I have to reconcile and, and work through. But I can do it. 
You know why I can do it? Not because I'm awesome. I can do it because I have the, the, the Spirit of God living within me. I have the same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead living inside of me. And if he can do that impossible thing, he certainly can do the impossible thing within me. I just have to lean into it. I just have to allow it. I have to believe that he can do it. Hmm. I thank you, Lord, for all of that. As we close this morning, um, I want to invite you this week. Uh, I know in the past as a church we've participated in, we've done a week of prayer and fasting. Um, and I'll be brutally honest with you that 2020, just there's so much activity, so much change, so much going on. I, I just came through the, through the holidays uh, a little bit tired and didn't put anything together. I was just like, you know what? We'll, we'll focus in 2021. Um, that's just honest. But I am going to ask us to do this. Um, there's numerous churches across New England that have set aside this coming Thursday as a day of prayer and fasting. Um, and, and we're going to join them. We're going to join them in that. So this coming Thursday, which is January 14th, I'm going to ask you to spend some time in prayer and fasting. Fast whatever you're, whatever you're able to. Um, maybe it's just a meal. Maybe it's a delicacy. Maybe you can fast the whole day and just drink liquids. What you feel in your heart you need to do. And spend some time in prayer. Prayer for the church and that the church would, would unify under, under the gospel and, and be the light in, in the dark place. I have a personal conviction that the country is in the place it's in because of church leaders, me and my peers. We have focused on the wrong thing. And I'm going to repent of it on Thursday. And I'm going to ask God to empower me to lead you to be the people God wants us to be. To be salt, to be light, in a dark place, to give you the, the tools. This is what Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, I'm, I'm bearing my soul with you here, says that God gave these people, these men and women, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's you being an ambassador for Jesus Christ in the world that you live in. And if, if the church is divided crazily on that, that means that the leaders have failed in doing that. So for me, my part, I'm going to repent and I'm going to ask God for courage and wisdom in doing what I need to do and ask for peace, not only within our congregation, but in our nation. And what role can I play in that? So it's kind of the focus, the church, our nation, your role in all of that. And I'm going to open the building Thursday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., one hour. If you want to come here and pray together corporately, I invite that. I'll, I'll be here. Um, but I challenge you to take that day. Congregations all over New England are going to be joining on the same day praying for the same things. God, our, our, our nation is just... And I'm not asking... Please, this is what I'm asking you to not pray for. Do not pray for your 
particular political ideology to succeed. That's not what we're praying for. We're praying for that God's ideas would succeed. And guess what? If your ideas align with God's ideas, you're praying for, for, for your ideas to succeed. But in the chance that your ideas don't align with God's, we don't want to pray amiss. So we're praying for God's ideas to succeed in our nation.